0: The opportunity that we have today as the saints of God to open the Word of God and to be thankful for it. And as we think of that, I invite you to turn with me to the book of James. But I need you to do something. Today's a little bit of an unusual sermon. I need you to open to the book of James and keep it there. And then I need you also to er- open to the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't know what that is, that's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And it'll make sense, but you are going to need to be able to very quickly flip between both places today. Uh, As I mentioned last time, I was ahead in the sermon card, which is not unusual. I either get ahead or I get behind, and so this gave me an opportunity to do something that I've been thinking about as I've been encouraging you to read and perhaps reread not only the book of James, but to read and reread the Sermon on the Mount and to see the the connections and the resonances between these two sections of Scripture. But the assumption being is that perhaps few of us have actually gone home, and maybe some of us have read it, but actually done all of the work to see how many correspondences there are between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. So today's sermon is really going to be top and tail heavy, with a lot of connection in between, and hopefully by the end it will make sense of what we're trying to do. So our time together will be greatly helped by you keeping your copy of God's Word open the entire time. We're going to turn our attention to the book of James and the Sermon on the Mountain. Before we do, because we're going to be reading so much, I'm just going to pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we do indeed thank you for your Word. Your Word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And we ask now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... That you would give us grace to be able to pay attention to your word. And Father, we ask that you would help us to apply your word to our lives. Father, we are thankful, as we just reminded ourselves, of the privilege that we have to gather in this building to be protected from the elements that are outside today, the freedom that we have to be able to be in here and to be warm when we want to be warm and cool when we want to be cool and to be able to gather with the people of God and assemble on the Lord's Day. All of these things are sometimes opportunities and privileges and responsibilities that we take for granted. We pray, Father, that you would help us today to not take it for granted. And we do, again, pray for all of our brothers and sisters in many churches around the country, but especially those impacted by Hurricane Ian, who are not able to assemble today, not because they did not own a building, but because of the tragedy of losing it to a hurricane. Father, we thank you that we have the freedom to be able to do it today. Help us then to steward this opportunity, not only so that we personally might grow, but that we might have the opportunity to share what we've learned today with other people. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed Himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. In this book we have the legacy of James' teaching and wisdom and it's really condensed into a very short book, a very condensed, powerful work. And though it does begin like a letter, as we've been reading, one of the things we notice is that it does not continue like a letter. He begins like a letter, greeting all of the Jews that are living outside of the land, but he doesn't address all specific problems of one particular local church, like so many of Paul's letters do. And it isn't written to one specific person, like Titus and Timothy and Philemon are. And it doesn't mention his ministry companions, like 1 Peter does. Instead, this letter is really a summary of all of the sage wisdom of James for every believing community of Jesus' followers, And his goal as we read and reread the letter really isn't to give us a lot of new theological information, but he wants to take the information that we have and get into the business of our daily lives and change how we live. But as we're reading this wisdom literature in the New Testament, we might be prone to think, isn't James just doing something that is moralistic? Isn't all of this writing and exhortation just moralism, trying to change how we live? Or... Is there any gospel undergirding all of this wise counsel to us? Skeptics have accused James' letter of being a lot like a synagogue sermon because there are really only two references to Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1. But as we'll see today in these parallels between the Sermon on the Mount, that he is actually anchoring all of his teaching for us in what he's learned from Jesus about the kingdom of God. And just as Jesus gave his disciples clear teaching and instructing about things like How to talk, and how to act, and how to pray, and how to work, and how to live. Not simply and only how to get saved and get right with God, but how to live their daily lives. So James conveys all of that same type of teaching to us through this letter, through wisdom that has been influenced by Jesus. And that should not be surprising to us at this point, because having literally grown up with Jesus... His teaching now not only sounds like Jesus, but he employs all the same imagery as Jesus. So this letter is a short, challenging book. And what James wants us to see, and what he's trying to show us, is how we can become truly wise. The community of faith becomes truly wise by applying God's summary law, Jesus' summary law. Love God. And love your neighbor. And in so doing, James teaches us. Here's our main takeaway point. James shows us that the church is the true heir of Jesus' teaching. And that becomes evident by her distinct ethic in her life. The church is the true heir of Jesus' teaching. And that becomes evident by her distinct ethic. And to make all of that clear, we're going to go back and forth, back and forth between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James but we're going to go sequentially through the book of James to make it easy, and we're going to see at least 19 correspondences. Now, I say that, and I know that that's a lot of correspondences. Not all of them are equally balanced, but I want to get us somewhere with what I'm trying to do because it's not just a little bit of Jesus teaching influencing this. It is the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, the church is to rejoice and be glad in her trials. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, so as you're flipping back and forth, plug your finger there. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now James, James chapter 1, verse 2. That's what we're going to do with every point. We're going to read Matthew, then we're going to read James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. More than anything else that we could ever do, Jesus and James want to teach us that the gospel of the kingdom actually enables us to embrace our trials and to gain a benefit from them. Because the gospel of the kingdom is the one great permanent circumstance in our lives in this world in which we live and move and have our being. Just as people learned earlier this week, so many things that seem stable and seem permanent are not stable and are not permanent. But the gospel of the kingdom is a permanent circumstance in the life of the believer. And every hardship of our lives is actually allowed by God because it is serving a gospel purpose for us. Church, when we actually begin to think about what that means, that's not meant to terrify us. That is meant to be a comfort to us. Because the gospel of the kingdom makes genuinely good news out of every other aspect of our lives. So the good news about our trials, according to both Jesus and James, is that God is forcing them to work for gospel purposes in our lives and to do good to us by actually improving our character. They're not always improving our circumstance. But they are always refining us as Christian people and improving our character. And they're conforming us into the image of Christ. And the very imagery of conforming is making us go somewhere that we would not naturally go. That they're actually shaping us to be a certain type of person. And in this way, both Jesus and James provide a lens for us. A lens for us to be able to view our trials, the trials of our life. Whether it is famine or fear whether it is disease or death, in a way that we are actually able as Christian people to see that there can be true cause for rejoicing in them. Second, the church is to be perfect and complete. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. James chapter 1, verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James knows from personal experience that life is hard and it is often far more difficult than we want it to believe. In fact, as one commentator rightly noted, it was not long after this that James himself was martyred after writing this letter. He believes, though, as he's writing this letter to this new group of people who've been created by the gospel, that life's trials and hardships are actually a paradoxical type of gift. They actually produce endurance, and they shape our character. God, James tells us, can work in the midst of all of our suffering to help us become, verse 4, perfect and complete. Now, as we've been seeing for the last few weeks, that this word perfect is a very important word for James. It's actually repeated seven times throughout his letter. James chapter 1. Uh, Verse 4, twice. James chapter 1, verse 17. James chapter 1, verse 25. James chapter 2, verse 8. James chapter 2, verse 23. James chapter 3, verse 2. And the problem for you when you're reading the English Bible is that it's not always translated perfect. But it is perfect in every one of those circumstances. And James wants us to see from this really common word group that this word, as he's trying to shape this people, is referring to a type of wholeness in their lives. And in this context, it means that they are to live, as Christian people, a completely integrated life, in which their actions are always consistent with the values of the kingdoms that they profess to believe and have learned from Jesus Christ himself. But James knows that all of the people that he's writing to, just like all of the people in front of me today, are fractured people. They profess to love God, and they genuinely love God. But they have all types of inconsistencies in their lives and in their character. And James knows that all of those people, just like all of you, are far more compromised than you would ever like to admit. But James is trying to tell us exactly what Jesus was telling us. That God is on a mission to restore fractured people and to make them whole by means of the gospel of the kingdom that both Jesus and James proclaim. Third. The church is to ask her good and wise God who loves to give her good things. The church is to ask her good and wise God who loves to give her good things. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? Flip over to James. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Drop down to verse 17 of chapter 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is not stingy toward His chosen children. He is a giver of good gifts to the people that He loves. He is dispensing wisdom generously to all of those who ask Him, verse 5, and ultimately salvation to the people that He loves, verse 18. Church, we do not have to figure out how to stay in the good favor of God who saved us to actually receive good gifts from Him. So often we receive the gift of salvation, but we live the rest of our Christian life as if we're trying to appease God so that He might continue to give generously and kindly to us. But James tells us what Jesus told us, that God gives more willingly than we receive. But though we would never like to admit it, and some of us would never want to acknowledge it to be the case, Many of us who are genuine believers have labored for the most of our Christian life to maintain favor between God and us and we stay frustrated at a failed attempt to do so because we're never able to keep up the rat race. But both James and Jesus tell us that this is not something that we need to agitate over in our life or wrestle about or fret over. That we simply need to believe that when we ask God as His children that God hears us And that God is willing to give to us, that His gracious favor is upon us and it remains utterly unchanged, which is the comforting truth for every believer in here. Your favor before God remains utterly unchanged, irrespective of the sin that you commit as a believer. That there is no wrath that you will awaken in God because of the sin in your life, because Jesus bore all of the wrath that you deserve. And so no matter how frequently you sin, even as a believer, God's disposition toward you is one of generous favor and loving kindness and mercy. So He stirs up a desire in us to where we actually dare to ask a good and wise God who loves to give good things to us. Brothers and sisters, are you approaching God as if he loves to give good things to you, as if he delights to pour out his mercy and blessing and favor upon you. He loves to give good things to his church. Fourth, the church is to avoid sinful anger before a righteous God. The church is to avoid sinful anger before a righteous God. Chap- Matthew chapter five verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. James chapter 1, verse 20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger, as David Pallison once said, is a brief madness, or sadly, an often not so brief madness for many of us. And it manifests itself in all types of ways in our life. In an irritability, and anger that is on hair trigger all the time. An argumentative or arguing spirit where we are disagreeable in our interpersonal relationships and have constant friction with the people around us. Where there's this deep-seated bitterness in our lives where we our anger is actually on recycle over a long period of time while we're nursing grievances and grudges and thinking about all of the things that we wish that we would have said to somebody when they were in front of us. Or violence. Angry acts that both hurt and destroy and we find pleasure in inflicting pain on people verbally and physically. But as we'll see in both Jesus' teaching and James' teaching, the church is not to be comprised of angry people. The church is to be peaceful, not angry. Because as we experience the the effects of the gospel of the kingdom, there develops within us this yearning affection for other people, especially our fellow Christian brothers and sisters who are participating in the realities of the gospel of the kingdom with us. We can't stay angry at people that we are supposed to love and share this life with. Reconciled to God and reconciled with one another... We actually manifest love, Jesus and James tell us, by living peaceably with one another. Are you living peaceably with the fellow members of your church? And we do this by not simply tolerating their face on Sunday mornings, or learning how to bottle up our anger, or learning how to swallow all of our emotions, but by living before each other and generously relating to each other in a gospel manner that actually contributes to each other's experience of the gospel of the kingdom. Part of the reason that we are so often frustrated with one another is that we're thinking about our experience of the gospel of the kingdom, and we do not come on Sundays thinking about each other's experience of the gospel of the kingdom and how we might serve the advancing of each other's experience of the gospel of the kingdom with our words and with our lives and how we serve. Fifth. The church is to be doers, not just hearers of the word. The church is to be doers, not just hearers of the word. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does, uh, does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. James chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word And not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Doing right is not always easy, but it is never more easy than when we are breathing deeply the atmosphere and the air of the gospel of the kingdom. Because only when we are taking in the gospel of the kingdom, according to both Jesus and James, will the church be able to integrate objective truth with subjective action in how we live our lives. As we seek to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in obedience to God's greatest commandment in the law, we actually learn how to live in all of the subjective moments of our lives rightly. But how can the church come to love God with all of her being? The Bible teaches us that genuine love in our hearts for God is generated by an awareness of what he has done for us. Because nowhere is the love of God more clearly revealed than in the gospel of the kingdom. And friends, when we are captivated by that love, we actually desire to do his will and not simply be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. So as Rodney Evans pointed out at verse by verse a few months ago, I want to ask you, do you simply read the Bible each morning, but never evaluate your application of the Bible throughout the day? Have you only been a reader of the word, but not a doer? Do you comfortably sit in here and maybe very carefully take notes of all of the sermons, but never actually take time to evaluate in the middle of the week if you've applied what you have heard on Sunday morning and the way that you have been living Monday through Saturday throughout the week? Friends, if that describes your personal devotional experience or your corporate practice on Sunday mornings, let me encourage you that one of the things that you could do usefully this week is take at least one of your lunch breaks and think, am I actually putting into practice what I am reading in my life? And pause on Wednesday to think, have I applied anything that I heard on Sunday morning to the way that I'm living this week now? Six, the church is to reflect God's heart for the poor. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The church is to reflect God's heart for the poor. I have to keep moving or we'll never get through. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then drop to verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'll flip over to James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? James knows that hard times in our lives are often caused by poverty, and yet he urges his audience to try to view their circumstance and this circumstance as a gift that forces them to trust God alone, because as he tells us later in chapter 1, that wealth is just fleeting and will pass away like the flowers of the field during summer heat. And yet, like nothing else could ever do in our lives, the gospel of the kingdom should instill in all of our hearts as believers a love for people who are downcast and poverty-stricken and those who have physical needs, especially if they are members of the household of faith and our local church in particular. Because the gospel of the kingdom actually reminds us of our own spiritual poverty, the poverty that we were born into and that God in His staggering generosity has graciously pulled us out of. Brothers and sisters, that is the... Sole reason we collectively pool our finances on Sunday so that we might steward it for the people here, so that we might minister the gospel of the kingdom in our church and abroad, and so that our deacons and deaconesses might have the ability to use some of those funds to bless members of our church and sometimes people who are not members of our church. And often, though you don't see those things taking place, they are taking place by your faithful and generous contributions. Whether you know it or not, God is stirring our affections so that we might give to those who do not have. And such a reminder instills in us a heartfelt love for the poor and a desire to show them the generosity that has been lavishly poured out on us because we too, as James says, have been made rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Now, I know everybody would love to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom and rich in money and also heirs of great land and wealth. But James says that the real blessing is to be rich in faith. When ministering to the poor with that type of motivation, we actually see them differently and we see what we're doing for them differently because we want to work a gospel benefit in their life. Seventh, the church is to reflect the necessity of righteousness. The church is to reflect the necessity of righteousness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. James chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. The righteousness of God that has been credited to us through Jesus is not merely something that we rest in, according to Jesus or James, but it is actually the saving reality by which God actually governs all of our lives. That we would be called to present our members and our lives as slaves to that precious gift of Him giving us righteousness implies that what He has done for us in Christ is saying something about the way that we should direct all of the areas of our life. That no area of our life can be left untouched by the gospel. What God directs to be holy and what results from that should be an obedience as we grow in holiness in our lives. So it could be said for James and for Jesus that what it means to be saved by faith is not merely a lifelong process where we joyfully surrender ourselves to God's righteousness, but that we actually do what His righteousness requires us to do in our lives. God has clothed us with righteousness so that we would live righteous lives. One of the confusing things for fellow members is And the outside world is when we profess to be clothed with righteousness, but we live unrighteous and unholy lives because then the people that we have covenanted together with here at the church cannot see if we are what we claim to be and the outside world can see no distinction in us because we profess to be believers, but we live unrighteous and unholy lives. So James, like Jesus, tells us that this gospel of the kingdom takes root and it produces a righteousness in us, a righteousness that is greater than anything that they would have ever observed in this life, a righteousness that actually changes the way that they live. Eighth, the church is to apply God's law, though she is free from the law in Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, and I'm just going to skip over a few of the headings here. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. This is everything between verse 21 and verse 48. Whoever divorces his wife, let her give her a certificate of divorce. You shall not swear falsely, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But I say to you... Now turn to James chapter 2, verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said... Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The fulfillment of the law of Christ by the work of Christ does not mean that we disregard the law of Christ. If that is the way that you are reading the Old Testament, You are reading the Old Testament wrong, and the only thing that you can do that is useful for yourself today is one, listen to Ligon Duncan's sermon from last week and then his Sunday night theology back to back and think about our relationship to the Old Testament law. But because Christ has fulfilled it does not mean that we disregard it. And at the same time, though we are free from the law, we have to realize that we are actually to live lives that are informed by that law and apply it to ourselves as the true Israel of God. We do not set it aside, but it shapes the way that we live so that we're not able to say it no longer matters how I live my life, but it actually informs the way that I live my life. And I'm able to obey this law because it has been written on my heart by faith in Christ. I am able to obey what God has commanded of me because I have been set free in Christ. And notice how James describes it. He calls it the law of liberty. Not the law of oppression, not the law that is difficult to keep, but he calls it a law of liberty because it is freeing for us to do what God requires in his word. Ninth, the church is to show mercy because she has been a recipient of mercy. Matthew chapter 5 verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. James chapter 2, verse 13. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When our minds are fixed on the gospel, as Milton Vincent says, we are then stimulated to show God's loving mercy to other people. Because we are always willing to show God's loving mercy to others when we are freshly mindful of the love of God that has been shown for us as heirs of the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel gives us the ability to show forgiving grace to those who have wronged us because it reminds us of the forgiving grace that we daily receive from God. Doing good and showing love to others who have wronged us is actually always the opposite of what we want to do. Nobody in the room is naturally inclined to show mercy when they have been wronged. And yet we are reminded of our sins in the gospel And that God is actively showing us forgiving grace. So we show forgiving grace. And we allow the gospel to reshape the way that we interact with other people. Brothers and sisters, if you're nursing a grudge or a grievance, even as we thought of earlier. And you're able to be here today and say, there are people that I refuse to forgive. I am unwilling to show people the love of God because of how they have wronged me. I am unwilling to change because of their sin then perhaps you do not quite understand the gospel of the kingdom today or certainly have protected it, protected an area of your life from it. Both Jesus and James would say that mercy triumphs over judgment because you have been a recipient of mercy you show mercy. Tenth the church is to be recognized by her fruits Matthew chapter 7 verse 16 you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, uh, thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Flip over to James chapter 3, verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Through the gospel, we learn not only the saving works of God on our behalf, but also that one of God's key purposes in doing that work in our lives is actually to put us to work where we bear fruit and do good works. And the Bible tells us that when Christ redeemed us, he did so in order that we might be zealous, as Paul says, for good works. When God's work works in our lives day by day, he does so in order to produce something in our lives, and he desires for there to be a fruit. That we work for His good pleasure. Though we are not saved by works and we're saved by grace, we are not saved without works. We do works and we are distinguished by works as God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared so that we would walk in them. These works, both Jesus and James teach us, identify us as heirs of the kingdom, the true Israel of God, The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that we hold one another as members of this church to our covenant commitment as members of the church and require one another to live in accordance with what the Bible teaches is because we expect that one of the natural fruits of the Christian life is that we would be people who bear fruit, keeping with repentance as it has been revealed in the word of God. That the natural consequence of professing faith in Christ is a life that is changed by the gospel. And that is not simply a verbal profession, but that is a visible profession. So if there is no visible change in our life and we refuse to repent, and by refuse to repent, I mean that we are unwilling to change. Many of us are quick to say, I'm sorry for what I did. That is not repentance. Repentance is change. Some of us claim repentance for years and never change. That means that we are not repenting. Repentance is a changing of life, a putting off of one way and a putting on of a new way. And if we are able to say, I'm one of God's children, but I am unchanged, then we have deceived ourselves according to Jesus and to James. As James is equipping the new community... He is actually preparing them to be able to see what is genuine Christian faith. Because in his day, the same thing would happen as it does in our day. People will come in and identify themselves as a believer. And they will say all of the right things. And they will profess to believe everything that we believe. And then they will do the opposite of what God's word says and say, but I'm a believer because I said so. Both Jesus and James say, actually, that person isn't one of my children because they don't bear God's fruit. Eleventh, maybe just finishing point ten, the works of Jesus and James identify us as heirs of the kingdom. That's what an heir of a kingdom is. Now, now eleven. I don't want to mess up the note takers too much. I already have a lot for them. The church is to be made up of peacemakers. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. I hope that all of this will come together at the end. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Flip over to James chapter 3, verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. As the one who is pierced for our transgressions, Jesus gives us peace. Brothers and sisters, that is what all of us want. We live our lives and we long for peace. Jesus gives us peace. And Jesus sends us on a mission which happens to be the exact same mission that he himself has been sent on by the Father. That is to bear witness to the truth. And as fishers of men, we are to announce peace to all who are weary and heavy laden. The wonderful message of the gospel is that we are declaring to them peace, reconciliation between God and reconciliation with men, forgiveness of sins, Peace, righteousness, hope, peace. The Prince of Peace gives his church a gospel of peace so that she might declare the gospel of peace and happiness and salvation because it is through the church that he speaks peace to the nations. So he comforts us with peace so that we might take peace to other people, reminding them that there is hope in Christ. And in this way, the mission that Jesus sends the church on is one where the disciples actually bring about the spiritual fulfillment of what we see in the book of Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it by proclaiming peace to people. A gospel of peace. As spirit and dwelt disciples, we preach peace and forgiveness to absolve sins. So that wicked people might turn from their sins and multiply our number as we labor for the coming of the kingdom. Twelve. the church is to ask with expectation to receive. The church is to ask with expectation to receive. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Actually, it's Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. James chapter 4, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now just remember who James is writing to. He's not writing to the unbelievers out there. He's writing to the people who call themselves the church. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Both Jesus and James help us see that prayer, rightly directed, is something that we are allowed to do as a Christian church, and it is one of the great purposes for which God has chosen to save us. As the chosen people of God, we are saved to pray and to bring our burdens to the Lord and our requests to the Lord and our pains and laments to the Lord and to ask God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to save us and to provide for us and to comfort us and to help us and to give us wisdom, to give us hope, to turn us away from doubt, toward confidence we are to ask him boldly in prayer arriving really in many ways at the pinnacle of what god wants us to do because in prayer probably most of all of all of the disciplines we find ourselves completely dependent upon god which unfortunately is why we pray so little we feel very confident when we're producing something like a sermon or a bible study or an evangelistic talk or a gospel presentation, or when we're reading through books of the Bible and are able to mark them off in our daily uh, devotional plans, but we feel as if we've done very little at all when we pray because nothing seems to immediately happen. But James and Jesus would want us to ask, how can we not, when we see the painful lengths that God has gone, to allow us to enter into His presence, not confidently and regularly come into His presence, expecting that He hears us. Brothers and sisters, if you're depressed today, you feel anxious, you feel overlooked by people around you, and not seen, as people say in our day, I don't feel seen, one of the great comforts of the gospel is that God sees you. God sees you, when no one else will listen to you, God listens to you we should be an astonishing reality for a believer that God would listen to sinful men and women, that he would hear our burdens and our prayers, that he would care to know what pains we feel, and that he would answer our prayers. Church, you cannot pray prayers too big for God to answer. Thirteenth. The church cannot serve God and be friends with the world. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. The double-minded person, the not integrated person, is the person that has split desires and serves two masters. While longing for the benefits of the gospel of the kingdom, they labor in this life to attain what the world has to offer, and they never see the conflict between the two. They refuse to let their grip Go of the things that they can produce or acquire or have, and God in His mercy often uses trial to force us to open our hand. Because if we are loving and serving God, we cannot have any other master. No relationship can rule us, no job can govern us, no thing that we get to do can be the ultimate thing that gives us identity. Nothing in our life can be something that we hold so tightly that we actually idolize it and long for it more than we long for God. The great gospel blessing is not anything in this life, but it is to know God and to be known by God. But so often the church herself is confused by this and longs for things in this world that are fleeting and passing and never really satisfy. And many of us have known the great pain of actually being given what we thought that we wanted and finding that it never satisfied at all. Whether that be in a relationship, or a child, or a job, or money, or house, or a certain car. Because it all bottoms out in the end. Both James and Jesus say the non-integrated person is looking two ways at once. And the only way to be a real and faithful disciple of Jesus is to be somebody who is whole and takes their mind off the things of the world. A great exercise to try to think about this is what occupies your anxious thoughts? And what do you find yourself thinking about when you're not proactively thinking about anything? What are the things that are dominating your desires? that seem to overwhelm you and you're unable to control those friends are probably the things that you idolize in this life 14th the church is blessed when she mourns Matthew chapter 5 verse 4 blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted James chapter 4 verse 9 be wretched and mourn weep and howl Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. We are to weep with those who weep because there are genuinely things in this life to lament. But according to Scripture, God deliberately designs the gospel in such a way to actually strip us of all the things that we would cling to in this life, so that it strips us of pride and it grounds all of our boasting in God and nothing that we can produce and nothing in this life. This is actually the wonderful mercy of the gospel toward us. Because pride and the things that we long for in this life, the things that we fail to weep over, actually reveal sins in our life. The gospel of the kingdom amounts to this powerful assault against everything that we long for. And it humbles us It humbles us so that we actually see pain in this world and we actually pray in this world so that we actually grieve and weep with those who grieve and weep. And what it does is it produces in us a humility that actually intensifies when we lament and mourn. A lack of love for God and a lack of love for the gospel of the kingdom. Fifteenth. The church is to be slow to judge, but that does not mean that she is not to judge. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is, the, there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. There's Jesus' judgment, even in the passage. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Who, those who speak evil against a brother or judge his brother speak evil against the law and judge the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We are quick to judge And to take judgment into our hands when we do not trust God's future judgment. The reason that you want to exact retribution is because you do not trust God's future judgment. And the reason that you want vengeance or you want to see people get what they deserve is because you do not believe that the day coming is good enough. That the day needs to be seen now particularly by you. And that they need to feel consequences because you have felt pain. So we quickly enact judgment. But what wrongly happens is that we think that that means that there is no way to judge in this life. But what we see in Jesus' teaching and James' teaching, and the only way that I can make sense of this, because we see in passages all throughout the New Testament that the church is offering up judgments. Jesus is judging people. He's judging the Pharisees. You're a hypocrite. You're being inconsistent. You're not who you say you are. You say this, but you do that. You tithe mint and uh, cumin and dill, but you do this other thing here. Those are judgments coming from Jesus. That's coming from the church. The only way that I can make sense of this is what both James and Jesus are saying is that we often set ourselves up as the final arbiter of faith and practice. And we don't allow the gospel of the kingdom to be the final arbiter of faith and practice. We think that we know the one right expression of Christianity And that everybody needs to conform with how we understand that one right expression. But this is the type of thing that frustrates marriages and friendships. It corrupts parenting. It ruins us in the workplace. We set ourselves up over other people and assume that just because we have a Bible verse attached to it, that we most certainly must be right and everybody else must be wrong. I think that is the exact opposite of what James and Jesus are teaching us here. We are to be slow to judge, but that does not mean that we are not to judge. 16th. The church is to trust God's provision for tomorrow. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade or make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes." Every time we deliberately disobey a command of God, it is because we in that moment are doubtful as to God's true intentions for giving us that command. And every time we refuse to trust God's provision for us in Christ, it is because we do not believe that God actually has our best interest at heart. We subconsciously and maybe sometimes consciously believe that God is withholding something from us that we would be better off having in this life. And all of the questions that plague us center around the fact that we're not getting what we're entitled to, or we're not getting what we deserve, and it's unfair that other people have gotten what we wanted, and it's unfair that God has not given us what we feel that we desire. And in all of those moments, we show that though we say that we trust God, we actually do not trust God. Friends, one of the most helpful things that I can commend to you is to study afresh the doctrine of God's providence. God's providence is a loving and merciful providence. 17th. The church is not to lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. James chapter 5 verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures, treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Or in short, you have laid up for yourself treasure on earth. The more that we experience the riches of the gospel of the kingdom, the more there develops within us this freedom for everything that we have in this life, where we realize that everything has been given to us as a gift, as James says at the beginning of the letter. Everything comes down to us from the Father, and it is a gift towards us in this life. But we cling to it because we don't see it as a gift, and we don't realize that that gift has been given to us to steward for the good and benefit of other people. What are the things in your life that you refuse to share? And the things in your life that you will not open up to other people? There are the things that you are treasuring for yourself. And you have your reward in, in full. Enjoy it now while it lasts. 18. The church is to remember the example of the prophets. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James chapter five, verse 10. "As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We stand in the New Testament on the shoulder of the apostles and the prophets. They preached faithfully, and if you go read carefully, not just their message, notice how they were treated when they were faithful. They were persecuted. They were alienated. They were ostracized. They were beaten, they were beheaded. They were tossed in prison. So why do we think that we should have the culture on our side? The suffering was for them, but victory is for us. When we stand rightly in the message of the apostles and the prophets, what we realize, that what is before us, is suffering. Ultimate victory. But suffering now... As we look forward to ultimate victory because we experience something now that this world cannot offer to us. Nineteenth. The church's speech is to have the truthfulness that oaths require. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Jesus and James. This is one of James' most unique contributions. Jesus and James regard speech as an index as to a person's true moral being and how faithful their spirituality actually is. Go back and read the letter of James today and see how many references there are to speech from chapter 1 through chapter 5. Not only here, but in chapter 3, and not only in chapter 3 verses 1 through 11, but throughout the entire letter. We are speaking people, and when we speak, we image God who has made us in His image. He is a speaking God who brought the world into existence through speech. And then He gave His people the ten words, what we call the ten commandments. And as He gives them those commandments... Jesus then comes speaking the gospel of the kingdom and entrusts to his people a message that they are to speak and to proclaim. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We are to be a people who live consistently with what we speak. And our speech, both privately and publicly, is an index of who we actually are. What we say in private, what we say in public. What we say online, what we say when we're angry, all of those are moments that actually reveal who we actually are because perfection cannot just be a matter of outward profession or simply outward obedience, but a consistent behavior where the entirety of our life is now integrated because there is a close connection between the heart and the way that we express it in speech. And into doing all of this, James shows us that the church is the true heir to Jesus' teaching, and that becomes evident by her distinct ethic. Everything that we saw is far more than just a quantitative demand for obedience to every commandment that is connected between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. This is calling to a wholehearted devotion to love God. But here's the question that we started with, and here's where we end. Is all of this just moralism? And why couldn't this have been a better congregational letter Just list all of the references for us in James, list all the references for us in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll spend the time that we want to spend actually reading all of the correspondences and do a better job preaching a better sermon. Why isn't there something else that we could have done? Just two weeks ago, I became incredibly concerned while listening to Mike Bulmore teach, and then over the last two weeks while reading Milton Vincent's book and thinking about my sermons here, especially from the book of James. That what would happen to us is that we would be a people who would never really walk in wisdom because we would try to apply platitudes in our lives devoid from the gospel. That we would think that just acquiring gospel information would make us wise. But before everything that we saw in the correspondences in the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to flip over to the Sermon on the Mount one more time, but look right before it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. This is the message that undergirds everything that then is revealed in Matthew 5-7. through It actually informs everything that James writes about in his letter. Notice what Jesus' first word is. It's not all of the moral things that people need to do. He tells them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change, because the kingdom is among you. I am God incarnate, and I am here to deliver you from your sins. Change your life. Turn away from your foolishness and believe in me. And when you believe in me, and when you trust in me, and when you believe in what I have come to do, and you trust in what I have come to do, when you profess to believe in my name, And live like you're living in my name. Then you will be truly wise. And you'll be truly heirs of the kingdom. The bedrock foundation for all of the wisdom that Jesus dispenses. And the bedrock foundation for all of the wisdom that James dispenses. Is this gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe. Repent and have faith. Turn away from your unrighteous deeds. And plead my righteous deeds. And when you do that, then you will be a truly wise people. Because only when you have repented of your sins and believed in me, can you actually walk in wisdom in this life. It will never be enough to simply acquire knowledge. The Pharisees and the Sadducees could do that. Your righteousness must be greater than theirs. And it will not be by you just doing greater deeds than theirs. Your righteousness will never be enough. You need a righteousness that is mine. You need to repent and believe. Because even as the church, the true Israel of God, James reveals, we bottom out all of the time, and we fight, and we quarrel, we bicker, and we moan, and we complain, and we slander people with our words, and out of the same mouth come, praise God from whom all blessings flow, and you're an idiot, and all of these other things that are inconsistent with our profession of faith. And as I listened to Mike, I realized... That there's no functional theology for us, but this is a functional theology that is governed by the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom sets us free to be truly wise people, to not just repent and singularly in our life and say that we're right with God, but to constantly walk in repentance. And what does constant walking in repentance look like? Growing in wisdom and more conformity with Christ. Which is why the gospel message never changes. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. If you're not a Christian here today, that message will never change. Turn away from your sins and trust in Christ. And believer who is struggling here today, The message of James and the message of Jesus are not get wise, but repent and believe the gospel. You want to walk in a more healthy relationship with the fellow members of your church? Repent and believe the gospel. You want to have a more healthy attitude at work? Repent and believe the gospel. You want to have a more healthy marriage? Repent and believe the gospel. You want to have a more healthy attitude with the way that you approach church and what you get to do or don't get to do and what we do or don't do or should do or shouldn't do? Repent and believe the gospel. You want to have a better outlook at what our community does when they set up festivals that are contrary to the gospel? Repent and believe the gospel and know that they need to repent and believe the gospel and what we need to expect of them is not that they would live moralistically, but that they should repent and believe the gospel. Brothers and sisters, without a message of repentance and believing the gospel, my fear is that all of the correspondences between Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James would just be things that you write about in your notebooks and you never can apply to your life because the gospel isn't helping you do it. But when we see that what James is doing is standing on the shoulders of Jesus and saying, that message... By a, life that, by a man that was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, is my message and my life is changed because of it. And now what I do is I proclaim to you to be different because of it. Which means at least two things very quickly. That we should expect the life of every Christian to change when they have repented and believed the gospel. And two, it is your duty as a church to require them to, exp- to change because they profess a belief in the gospel. You must expect them to change. And if they say that they can't change. They won't change. They're unwilling to change. They refuse to change. Then, friend what you need to do is tell them. That they have not repented and believed the gospel. And they're not who they think they are. We should expect the life of every believer to change. It might be sometimes nearly incremental and almost invisible, but it will change. And it is our duty as fellow members of the same church to expect and require that change to take place. And the way that God does that is through the ordinary means of grace. As we immerse ourselves, not in just this wisdom to be different, but immerse ourselves in the story of the gospel of the kingdom, of a king who came to save us from our sins and lived a beautiful life that none of us have ever lived and died a substitutionary death that we all deserve to die and saved us from the wrath that should be poured out on every single one of us because of the endless litany of sins that all of us have willingly and gladly committed in our lives because we love sin more than we love God. But in His infinite mercy, has caused us to be born again by a simple and profound, unbelievable and freeing message. Repent and believe, turn and have faith, trust and be saved. And when we immerse ourselves in that story, we will be truly wise. Not because we've acquired more information, but because now we have a functional gospel that is actually motivating the way that we live our lives. Believer, genuine believers, part of the reason that you are so often defeated by sin is that the gospel is not what's motivating the change in your life. And you can't do any of the 19 things that we highlighted because you just simply think, I need to try harder. And you will be constantly met by a brick wall. But when the gospel undergirds the change, it actually carries us forward. The gospel has an unbelievable power to motivate us to move forward in repentance and faith in the gospel. friends, all of the correspondences meant to come to one point that we are the true heirs of the kingdom by our distinct ethic. Have you believed that gospel? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for these, my friends, and their patience as we moved all about Your Word today. And yet, at the same time, we thank You that Your Word is truth. It is never a waste of time for us to give our attention to Your Word. And it is never a waste of time for us to move throughout Your Word and to see all of the applications of the Gospel to our life. I pray, Father, that this would just be A beginning of us trying to apply the gospel to our lives throughout the rest of our study of James. That we might see that what is motivating us is the gospel. And what we are to do is to be truly wise as we grow deeper into the gospel. We grow up by becoming more humble and going down deeper into the depths of the gospel and applying more concretely the gospel to every facet of our life because no area of our life is left untouched by the gospel. May we be people who are truly changed visibly in our lives because of what we have actually professed to believe. Father, we pray that You would also give us the courage... In the difficult moments when we actually have to call someone out and tell them that they are not living in step with the message of the gospel. We ask all of this, in the name of our God who has revealed Himself to us, as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.